Well, I came in 1969, so it's 52 years now. I moved in July or August of 69. I came up here from Vanderbilt in Nashville where I had an almost complete doctorate a dissertation still underway. So my first year here was as an instructor with a one-year contract. Wasn't sure I'd get to stay because they told me I had to finish my dissertation. Uh-huh. Uh, fortunately for me, unfortunately for the town, May of 70, May the 12th, we mm-hmm. closed the university because of the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations. Uh, I was teaching then, of course, and would have gone through about early June, and then I was going to teach summer school. But when all that happened, I got to finish my dissertation. So that was one good thing personally that came of that. Uh, And I've been here ever since. I got a assistant professor position by virtue of finishing my dissertation. I spent 10 years as sort of a pure academic. Uh, I worked my way up through the ranks and uh, I was president of the faculty senate, so I always was involved with other things besides sort of the pure academics. Is that around the time that Kevin would have been a student? Uh, <laughs> it was a little, he may still have been here. It was uh, 75, 76. Okay. Uh, and then I got a chance to be associate dean of the graduate school, which I did, and then I became acting dean of the graduate school because. Uh, the president left, got fired, and John Guyon, who was dean and my boss, got asked to be acting president, so he made me acting dean. I did that for almost five years and then uh, went back to political science, and within less than a year, I was associate dean of liberal arts. I did that for one year and became dean. I was dean of liberal arts for 12 years. I was then uh, provost and vice chancellor for academic affairs uh, for two and a half years, was asked to be interim chancellor. So for 25 months, I was interim chancellor. So, At that point, I had done it all, uh, took retirement. Then in January of 2001, I became a visiting professor and staff member at the Institute. Mm -hmm. I had helped co-found the Institute as Dean of Liberal Arts, so I knew the Institute and knew Paul well and seemed like a good fit. Paul had been a good friend. I'd been a strong supporter of his, and... So he and Mike Lawrence asked me to come back because at that point I had moved to Little Rock and became a visiting professor at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. But I came back in order to take that job and been here ever since. I I tell you what I love about that particular component of the story, John, is that it it proves that you're you're never – you're never too graduated in life for Carbondale to not just pull you right back That's in. That's true. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. <laughs> and uh, 
we hope you get pulled into this, the 78th episode of the WTF Carbondale Seven, podcast. Well, I'll have to figure out how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we, uh, where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back to this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois, and uh, a very special person who has called this place home for over, so you, over you said 50 years over, over 50 years so so what i mean was there any particular push out of the door at, at vanderbilt that that prompted you to here was it just kind of a activity was accessible and and this is this is just where you came i know you gave kind of a little primer of that on off the top of the show well my leaving vanderbilt and coming here was a push pull number one uh I had a very pregnant wife who had been teaching school in Nashville. She said, it's your turn to get a job. <laughs> so you need to get a job even though your dissertation's not done. And uh -huh. uh, I had some thoughts about staying one more year because I could have finished and taken another class or two. But anyway, uh, we needed to survive. And uh, so I went on the job market and got interviewed at the Southern Political Science Association meeting by a delegation from SIU. Uh -huh. That led to an invitation in January of 69 to come up here and go through the full drill for getting interviewed. And that then led to the job. Uh, and it was a good place. I, I thought interesting place. Uh, it was just huge at that time. Yeah. People couldn't find places to live. We couldn't get enough classes open for them. Uh, classes were overflowing, and I thought, wow, this dynamic, interesting place. And uh, I had been in a small uh, school by comparison. Vanderbilt mm -hmm. at that time was about 5,000 undergraduates and 5,000 graduates. And private schools are very different. So I thought, okay, megaversity, I'll go see how that is. Yeah. And it turned out, again, I could have stayed one year and been gone, but they offered me a permanent at that point, and so I stayed. It's almost just like a roll of the dice. Some 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 folks catch it and some folks, yeah. you know, kind of kind of jump up and, and move on. Yeah, and I, I didn't come here with an ambition to move on, but I didn't expect to stay all that long. I yeah. figured four or five years and maybe make tenure here, assistant professor to associate. Uh, but I first thought I would probably do that. And I looked at things that came my way at various times, particularly as an administrator. Uh, but what I was currently doing or about to do at SIU was always better than what I was looking at. So we stayed what how has it kind of changed over the years right and this is something that uh just just hearing you kind of kind of talk through the the different roles uh that sparked my my interest is just what what it looked like you use the phrase you know kind of connected with the delegation before coming here to interview yeah right and and what a process looked like it that period how the process has evolved through the decades you know, and how it's looked at different times and bringing people on and people moving around university systems throughout the country <clears throat> and kind of where we're at now and how much different even shucks, even probably in the last year and a half, things have changed versus, you know, what we were what we were living in before even the pandemic. Well, in sort of gross anatomy, I would say SIU then was a teenager kind of place, even though at that point uh, we were 100 years old. We had our 100th and uh, 19, uh, it was 
1979, when we had our 100th anniversary, but as a full-blown, complete, comprehensive institution with major graduate and research commitments, we were young at that game and had been growing and growing by leaps and bounds. We couldn't keep up with the demand. And it was just a very dynamic place with lots of new and young people coming in and lots of excitement about that growth and building really a major university where we had been up until recently before that, primarily a teacher's college mm -hmm. with ag and uh, liberal arts and education being sort of the center of that. Since then, we have totally matured. We've become uh, what we are today, which is a very significant and fairly mature university, although we have, of course, uh, our numbers have shrunk, and we've had to readjust to that, and uh, I think we're in a maturity that uh, is maybe middle age or midlife crisis <laughs> from time to time, and we've had to survive several midlife crises yeah. along the way. So it's, it's been interesting to see that evolution of SIU, and as we go, so goes the town in many ways. Yeah. Uh, it was a very dynamic place then, but uh, frankly, downtown was one of the ugliest places I'd ever seen then. <laughs> uh, I was in the Army and did my basic at... Fort Hood, Texas, uh -huh. and Colleen, Texas is a notorious army town full of beer joints and other places that take care of the needs of service men, mostly mm -hmm. then, and I came up through here and drove up the strip, and I thought, man, this looks like Colleen, Texas. I, I don't know <laughs> if I can live here or not, uh, but the university was really had some beautiful areas even then, much more attractive, and the city has come a long way, particularly on this, the Southern Illinois Avenue uh, development and all of that uh, has changed uh, almost all for the better because it really was pretty trashy. Yeah. Downtown, uh, there were nice parts, but downtown wasn't among them. So <laughs> I've, I've watched Carbondale change as we've changed and, you know, when we get a cold at SIU, Carbondale gets pneumonia sometimes, and yeah. it, it's been hard on Carbondale. But the university, I think, and the city have way better relationships now than I mentioned the demonstrations and the disruptions mm -hmm. of May of 1970. Uh, the city and the area hated those. Uh, there was a major businessman that said we ought to get a tank and drive it up Southern Illinois Avenue and shoot them all. Mm -hmm. uh, it was that bad. The relationships on town and gown were mm -hmm. really bad in those days in lots of ways. Was it simply because people from the town saw the school simply as the reason why people existed in place who had a different way of acting or thinking than, oh, yeah. than they may have? Yeah, it was really uh, a typical sort of rural area re re reaction to an awful lot of hippies and yippies and everything yeah. you could think of. And uh, you and your beard today would have been tame in those days. I mean, <laughs> good grief. Some of, the, some of the people chose to 
demonstrate their political and anti-war sentiments in very evident ways. So that irritated the town, some of them. And Mm -hmm. certainly the area further out of Carbondale you got, the more condemnation there was of those days. And we were full of... uh, African-Americans from Chicago and St. Louis. We had the second highest percentage of African-American students of any non-HCBU in the country next only to Wayne State in downtown Detroit. Uh, We had kids from all over. We had a hundred different countries on campus Mm -hmm. uh, and there is cultural clash there. I think that's gotten a lot better, and it's become much more accepting uh, on both sides. But certainly, I think the city and the area had to get used to uh, the diversity of SIU. And I will come back to that, because I, I think just having the insight of, of, of seeing uh, you know the town be and then maintain uh, being unlike any or most rural areas in oh, yeah. you know the United States, right? Not just the the region, but really you know around the country. Um, but before I get there, just to just to you know kind of pave the way to there, because I'm interested in this too, is is what why politics for John Jackson? <clears throat> was it was it something that you just always had an interest in, or did you stumble into it, or what <clears throat> what drew you this direction? Well. I sort of inherited it. My dad was a farmer, cotton farm in deep south Arkansas in the 40s. If you've ever read John Grisham's A Painted House, Mm -hmm. uh, he and his family left an east Arkansas cotton farm in order to move to town in order to survive. My folks did the same thing. Farming cotton in south Arkansas in the 40s was a terrible way to make a living. My dad Uh, lived on the family farm, but he decided to move to town, became a plumber, and after being a plumber for a few years, he became the superintendent of the water, sewer, streets uh, departments, Mm -hmm. all of which consisted of him and one other guy because (laughs) it was a town of less than 1,500. Yeah. Uh, but he did it all. He was also volunteer fire department uh, assistant chief, uh, and I saw all of that up close and personal. I joined him in digging ditches and laying pipeline and making water and sewer taps and all of that uh-huh. uh, in the summers when I got old enough to do so. So my first job was 75 cents an hour working in the sewer system. Mm-hmm. You can't get much more down to earth than <laughs> helping throw the hard uh matter out of the drying pit after it had been cured in the hot Arkansas sun, which uh-huh. was my one of my first duties. And, you know, literally digging ditches with a shovel and a pick. So everything's been up since then. But, <laughs> you know, I, I learned what city government was about, and I took an interest in state government and from that national government very early on. And I was delighted when I went off to school and learned that you could actually major in political science. I had no idea at the time. <laughs> That's great. Is there a, I mean, just having been hands-on like that, it, do you look at things like the lead pipe issue throughout this country and just go, 
there's there's better policy that could work here, oh, yeah. people. This is this is the core of service delivery oh, yeah. that the greater good is supposed to be served by this you know by this form of you know government that we that we live under or in or amongst. yeah. I think we don't teach that fundamental lesson. I said to a class not long ago, we do a great job in this country on teaching the concepts of individual rights and individual freedoms. Everybody gets that real fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they turn into people who don't want to contribute uh, any tiny loss, let's say wearing a mask or social distancing or any of that. I told that class the concept of herd immunity is about as communal, a community-oriented, mm -hmm. a group-oriented, what it takes to live in an orderly society and mm -hmm. why your freedoms are much expanded by living in that ordered society. Otherwise, you get this social contract theory. You get Hobbes's life in a state of nature is nasty, brutish, and short. Mm -hmm. And it really is. When anarchy comes, you're at nasty, brutish, and short, and the biggest guy with the biggest club or the biggest army is going to run the show. Mm -hmm. And I had tried to explain all of that uh, to my classes over the years, but I don't think that message takes with a lot of people because there's so many countervailing norms and myths and uh, deep-seated beliefs out there. So right now I'm going to preach a bit here, but my sermonette is right now we've got, what, 33, 34, 35 percent that say they're not going to make any contribution to beating covid mm -hmm. Well, it's going to take a group effort. Already has taken a group effort, but they're not interested. And so they go and go on and on and demonstrate and go crazy over, I don't want to wear a mask and I don't want to take a shot. Yeah. And so I think we failed on that side of the equation. You have to have both. I teach, you know, first through the Tenth Amendment and all mm -hmm. those freedoms that are guaranteed by the Constitution, but I also try to teach that there are obligations to the community. And I think to some extent it came from my early days of seeing my dad having to provide safe drinking water mm -hmm. and what it took, we sent samples off to the State Board of Health to make sure he was doing that and having to provide safe sewer systems. Mm -hmm. But if you live in a place without safe drinking water and safe sewage systems as Many of my friends who rode the school bus into town lived in those days. Mm -hmm. You understand that, you know, it really takes a communal effort to provide those services. And so that was kind of my early introduction, and I've tried to talk about both sides of those that equation. Well, that's, I mean, I mean that's just the, the purest form of, you know, just commitment to this this whole system, right? What what you individually and as part of a system have contributed overall to the body body politic throughout decades of of work and service. Sometimes at the same time, sometimes separately, yeah. right? Work work may be work, work may be service, service may be service yeah. standalone. Yeah, they overlapped. And, yep, certainly. Um, you know, and, and I I think it's it's interesting that that you kind of tap on the order component as well, and. You know the difference that we see now between 
what order could and should be, right? The order of society and just the, the flow of, of life versus this focus on strict regimentation and the difference yeah. between order and regimentation um, and how that kind of plays out in, in everyday life now where people say, oh, I want order, but what they really say is I want regimentation, and those are just simply not the same things. Well, yeah, uh, any... Uh, concentration on the order and on the law and on keeping the peace and to some extent the status quo can easily merge into authoritarianism and dictatorships and now all strong men of course use the excuses that mm -hmm. we got to keep order and so clearly you can drop off that end of the continuum very easily and there's some countries in uh, middle Europe right now struggling with that. Mm -hmm. uh, places also like Turkey, for example, mm -hmm. could tip over and maybe has already tipped over into authoritarianism. And uh, the Latin American countries have struggled with that for for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, you can push that too far very rapidly. I don't think we're at that point, but there are certain authoritarian elements that wouldn't mind us tipping over that uh, that tipping point. Yeah. Have you have you done a reasonable amount of travel throughout the course of anything from study to to work and you know whether it's you know as a as a dean or as part of the institute or do you usually stay pretty well rooted in in space here? How does that? No, I was always a big proponent of internationalism. That's one thing I appreciated about SIU. Mm -hmm. I worked briefly between uh, my master's degree and then going back to get a doctorate later. Uh, I had a stint in Washington working for Senator J.W. Fulbright. Mm -hmm. He's of the Fulbright yeah. program. And so I had a natural <laughs> introduction. I knew who he was, got a job with him, went out to Washington, served yeah. for a short time on uh, assistant clerk to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee because he was chair at the time. So all of that resonated with me when I got to SIU. I had many opportunities to travel and took advantage of all of them that I could. I represented the university many times to a number of different countries. I helped set up the, the campus that we had for 10 years in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, I got to go to Russia once. I got to go to two or three places in Europe uh, several times. I got to go to Korea once, to Taiwan twice. Uh, and my last long trip for the university was, uh, I went to Iraq and to Baghdad in 2008, and it was still a war zone then, but it had begun to start opening up. And one of my PhD students was head of the placement of graduate students for all of Iraq mm -hmm. and they wanted to have a relationship with SIU so I went to Baghdad and landed at the airport yeah. <laughs> got on a, a van and a caravan of vans with a lot of guys with a lot of guns and mm -hmm. went downtown Baghdad so that was my last long trip for the university and then particularly since uh, I left administration I've paid for and gone on a fair number of private trips too. Do you uh, look around when you were driving down Baghdad and go, huh, 
Looks an awful lot like Colleen, Texas. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looked like a lot of guys with a lot of big guns yeah. and a lot of armor and a lot of stuff I recognized. <laughs> and, uh, I, the van I was on had about uh, 16 administrators from other universities, plus Larry Dietz and I, who was from SIU then. He was vice chancellor for student affairs. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a couple of guys with a couple of very large guns on each end of the van. <laughs> Did you ever take much interest in the in the war and force aspects of of politics or or was that uh, war and well, force? Yeah, I mean just in 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 general the the conflict aspect of well, of politics. That's not my field exactly. No. That comes under international relations mostly and mm-hmm. that, I taught that uh, in a cursory fashion when I was teaching things like intro to American government, I'd teach a unit on American foreign and defense policy. So as a citizen and as somebody interested, I've read a lot of that, but I didn't teach a lot of it. Mhm. No, that that makes sense. That makes sense. The um, ah, that's cool. I mean, that's that's quite the uh, talking through all the all the opportunities to just go different places and, oh, yeah, and it was representing. Great. It was a great fringe <laughs> benefit. The trips were often difficult. The, yeah. Other than going to Iraq and Baghdad, the toughest trip was going to Russia because mm-hmm. we went just as Glasnost was getting started and just as. Uh, uh, the government was lightening up and trying to make things different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, when you got out of Moscow, the we went to Vladimir, which is about 120 miles out of Moscow. Mm-hmm. It was really rough and tough and primitive out there and a third world country easily. Mm-hmm. Now, it's... I, I've got a I've got a friend who who grew up uh, part of his childhood spent in in Russia. His his uh, father uh, was a minister, uh, and uh, just talking about the the just the overall difference in the way folks think in Russia versus yeah. here, right? You know, there's, yeah. there's been so much talk in recent years of, of that, of that lineup between people. But the reality is we, we come from two very different uh, planes of existence yeah. know, just they, in the last hundred years alone. They're still living with the residue of the czars. They yeah. had a dictatorial form of government and a culture that acculturated to that. And while they had superficially the trappings of democracy, they had authoritarian leaders, and they still have an authoritarian leader. Yeah. And so it's tough to build democracy on a foundation that doesn't have some cultural values that uh, really will support it, and making that transition is, is really tough. That's why we can't—we don't do nation-building very well with the American military. You mm-hmm. can't— you can't import that nation building under the gun of the American military, and yeah. that's why Afghanistan's impervious to our values, and Russia, uh, all kinds of places like Iraq where we've tried to do that, it, it doesn't work very well. And the military not trained to do that anyway. What was your What was your role when you were enlisted? When I was in in the military, yeah, uh, I went through the infantry. 
school. I went through the infantry school uh, basic at Fort Hood, and then I went to Fort Benning, which is also the home of the infantry, and I mm-hmm. went through that. <clears throat> and then I got uh, the chance to be in Army Intelligence, and heck, I'd been uh-huh. in political science, so <clears throat> that looked good to me, and uh-huh. uh, I figured out I'd really want to be in the infantry if I could get another option. And so I spent the rest of my time uh, in the Army Intelligence Corps. That's cool. <clears throat> That's cool. I, won't, I won't ask you too much further than that. Intelligence Corps probably can't talk too much even even years later. Well, <laughs> mine, was, mine was pretty tame stuff, but it was interesting stuff. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the way that that whole has changed. You know, I, I look at something like you know, all of, all of the geospatial activity that we have coming out of yeah. the Metro East, oh, yeah. right? And just, you know, be, most most folks pay no mind to it, right? They don't understand where their access to Google Earth comes from, but yeah. it's just, it's something it's... wild. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to take a tour of uh, NSA, the National Security Agency, one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was that was an eye-opener. <laughs> they can do some really incredible things there. Is there any particular door that you've gotten through over the course of your <laughs> your, your time, whether it's with the Institute or, or, or elsewhere, that really just sticks out and kind of to this day kind of blows your mind a little bit? Like, wow, I can't really, I can't believe I got to go into this place and see this thing. Well, I did, uh, I, I did have lots of good uh, experiences of, uh, both academic and political leaders meeting us at the airport and taking us to this and that. But going to the green zone and going to downtown Baghdad was probably my most unexpected uh, (laughs) kind of experience. (laughs) And by then I was too old to fight a firefight. So I was hoping not to have to put any of that to use. But uh, I've had some other really interesting opportunities to negotiate with governors, for example, Mm -hmm. over things we needed at SIU to appear before committees in Springfield and make our case. And all of that was, for me, a political scientist, particularly interesting, and I was glad to get to do it. Now, you talk about, you know, working in the interest of, of the university and, and having to work into the system of government. And I, I promise you I'm getting to a point here <laughs> along the way. There, there, are, there are many different ways that folks can exert power. One of those things being, of course, media, right? We're sitting here yeah, right. right now having a communication. Exactly. Uh, right now, that'll be, that'll be a distributed piece of, of tangible media that, you know, who knows what influence it'll have over somebody, but hopefully somebody will just watch it and enjoy yeah. it. You know, just one of the best parts about when you came in the building and, and Kevin Purcell being like, Oh, I still hear you on (laughs) this and I see you on that. It's so exciting. Is there a particular place where the, the understanding of media, the power of media, the ethics behind media, um, all kind of wrapped together for you, uh, a place where it started a place where it's, it's gone and kind of, where it's ended up now with something like you had mentioned being on being a you know rotating guest on the on the panel for Capital View. Yeah, I've been fascinated by the media and have studied it. Uh, uh, the influence of the media on politics has really been one of the things that I've followed carefully. I had a good friend here named Keith Sanders who was in two national circles on what's called political communications, mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, 
I've always studied that because it's a profound symbiotic relationship uh, between the two. Uh, I always had great regard for the journalist and for uh, the TV and radio and news uh, people that I have dealt with over the years and uh, have done lots and lots of interviews on television, <laughs> radio, and newspapers over the years. And I think uh, I think we we've gotten to such a complex media world now, it's hard mm -hmm. for anybody to unravel it all. But the long and short is uh, a free media is absolutely essential for a democracy. The founders understood that and enshrined mm -hmm. the, the First Amendment freedoms around that concept. But that's also a part of civic education. And mm -hmm. I see myself as in civic education. I see the media as in civic education. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been very interested in that, very respectful of the role that the reporters play that come to interview me and uh, frankly some of them are pretty young I mean if you yeah. do river river region report out at the SIU TV station mm -hmm. with those young people uh, you have to give them a foundation in what we're about to talk about mm -hmm. and so that's a part of the teaching function uh, but it's all been part and parcel of the same educational role it seems to me that's that's good, and it's it's healthy. I mean, it needs to be the the capacity for media literacy and and to just yeah. navigate this. Yeah. Ever as I mean, I think you said it best. Complex world is that is that something where you and Paul connected well? Yeah, he his... he was a journalist, of course, and both uh, owned and edited newspapers, and that was his background starting when he was nineteen years old. So yeah, we had a. Uh, we had similar views on that uh, from the get-go. Uh, he wasn't really into the academic side of the formal study of the role of mass media. Uh -huh. That wasn't. He was just such a good practitioner and mm -hmm. understood the, both sides of having been a journalist and then having gone into politics. So he also respected uh, what journalists did and and always was careful to. Uh, treat those people right it's it's amazing anytime i see somebody who ought to be better to journalists yeah not being so yeah. good to journalists. it just it blows my mind like you don't understand yeah that these folks are 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 literally who put your message in front of others and yeah. you either are going to work with them or you're not yeah and the product on the other end is going to validate what you were willing to put yeah, into that. Yeah, exactly. And again, the authoritarian systems use the media and abuse the media mm -hmm. in their systems, and uh, we have to keep holding out the free media uh, standard. Uh, and that's I, I, I talked to Jack Titchener a little bit about this in his episode, episode 24 of the WTF Carbondale podcast. I think I've got that right. Um, shameless plug <laughs> in the midst. But, um, you know, talking about something like the Fairness Doctrine going away in the middle of the Reagan administration yeah, exactly. and its impact on, you know, this, I'll call it a mess of what we're in yeah. the midst of now. Yeah, right, exactly. I, it may well have gone off the rails right about there. <laughs> Do you, is there, is there any particular interview or, or activity or something early on in, in, in your career that kind of sticks out 
uh, as as just a, a, a unique media interaction that you had or something that's just very memorable to you? Well, my early days here, I started fairly quickly getting asked uh, about politics, particularly because I was American government campaigns, elections, political parties, public opinion. So In a very good Arkansas accent. And a good Arkansas accent, which hasn't changed that much. So I got fairly quickly connected to Channel 3, but uh-huh. that's not the Channel 3 that you and most people know. It was in a storefront just barely off the square in Harrisburg. Uh-huh. I would drive over there to do uh, 10 o'clock news on the night of the elections, mm-hmm. and it would be one guy interviewing me, an engineering guy back in the back and nobody else around. Do they do they smoke just as much back and then? They did. In engineering yeah. and <laughs> it was just it, uh, it was primitive. So uh-huh. when Bonnie and Steve Wheeler bought out that and moved it to Carterville mm-hmm. and built a modern operation there, it was a dramatic change. Uh, but I remember where they came from. What, was, so what what was kind of there? And that that God, I I should reach out to 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 Bonnie and Steve and and look to have them on and talk about that. But I mean, you you, you I mean, you t- watched that happen. Oh firsthand. yeah, absolutely. They were the newcomers because I'd been here ten years maybe when they bought out the station. Uh-huh. But oh, you can't imagine what a transformation that was. Yeah, uh, and. I, th- I think Channel 3 then was probably the worst ABC network news <laughs> <laughs> operation in the country. And the Wheelers transformed all of that. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, and, I, and I, I've, on, I've only seen a little bit about their their backstory, but they came in and, and was was Steve running the day-to-day operations and Bonnie was the anchor? Yes, and... exactly. <laughs> yeah. He was general manager, owner, and she was the anchor. Uh. Uh, but they they staffed up pretty quickly. No, oh, that's that's just that's yeah, that's a story I got to chase down. Thank you for for that primer, John. I think that's uh, well, just a it's good... the advantage of being here fifty years. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, this is this is the type of of just the 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 rooted story here that I'm that I'm looking to put parallel with the here and now, and a little bit of you know what the future could be, right? Being able to talk to folks like yourself that just have have not just been close to the story, but have been part of the story, right? And can tell it from your perspective, but that perspective connects to so many other folks out there. And there's still plenty of folks that that exist in space that uh, you know that that have their own particular. I had Emil Spees on the podcast a couple, oh, yeah. of, you know, a, a couple of uh, podcasts ago. I mean, just there there are there are folks that still have uh, you know this this complete uh, you know bucket of, of memories that people need to see and, and be shared in kind of this, you know, casual, modern context. And, and Well, we tried to tell that story in that 150th anniversary book we put out, uh-huh. which I edited and wrote the first and last chapter, so shameless promotion here. But no, please, plug it away. This it is really does. That book attempts to show that transition and what we've been through with emphasis on the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's succinctly captures that era and that growth era that we were talking about earlier uh, and how we went through that transition and how we got to where we are today. Uh, And people like Emil, of course, were 
critical parts. There was a generation of the Morris era on through to my era that Mm -hmm. really saw all that transition. And again, that story is also Carbondale's story. Yep. Yeah. Well, and and this is the the perfect segue. That's what I love about these conversations. I'm I'm the type, I, I have a mind for just watching conversations play out, right? Some people rush through and they want an answer from you. Sometimes you just have a conversation yeah. and this all wraps around. This gets back to, to what I wanted to reference earlier in the conversation before I asked you about how you got into politics. And and that is kind of the the work that was done through the university to reach out to all of the communities surrounding Carbondale and throughout southern Illinois mm-hmm. to take the the enrichment that the university offered mm-hmm. to uh, you know the people that attended the university and and distribute that throughout the region yeah um you know and just being having a having a you know front row seat to that activity yeah that has changed dramatically um in the morris era there was so much money and so much available that he could work with he had a huge uh, department called the department of community development Mm -hmm. they had field people that went out and worked with the towns and the cities in the area and tried to help them get grants to get water and sewer systems and all kinds of technical help and Mm -hmm. it was kind of like the department of agriculture the county agents going out and helping the farmers Uh, and about the second budgetary crisis after Delight Morris came along was so-called firing of the 106 and 37 tenured faculty were mm-hmm. let go to accommodate some new budget realities during the Ogilvy years. Mm-hmm. And that whole group got disbanded and most of them fired. Oh. Uh, and so the ability to subsidize that level of go out changed dramatically we went from just huge enterprise to almost nothing yeah so we've had to slowly rebuild the outreach in ways that the state will support because uh, the state basically didn't care that we didn't keep doing that uh, Mm -hmm. and so we've had to reinvent that we still do great work on things like ag for example or medical school outreach Mm -hmm. and all kinds of other technical outreach. Uh, WSIU is a great uh, function of yeah. outreach to the area and across much of the state. So we've got to have the 21st century of that, and we're still struggling to define all of that. Well, it so at least knowing that that's something that you have to find, right? I'm sure yeah. there are plenty of places where people don't even know what they need to find. Yeah, right. <laughs> and we've at least highlighted that much. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a little bit more reassuring than some yeah. people might think. Yeah, yeah. Well, we still think we have a regional obligation, but funding it and keeping it going and defining what it means in terms of jobs and economic development yeah. and enrichment of the culture and providing health care and all of those things uh, is very much a work in progress. Well, and what can be you know, this ties back to what we were talking about earlier. What can be funded is work and what just is purely service. Yeah, and exactly. There, and I, there, there is a lot of that, but not as much as perhaps uh, there should be. 
Well, and I, I think the you know the other side is just hi, hiring in folks. I had a, another uh, person on the podcast. Now I'm going to hate myself for not being able to remember when Camille, which episode Camille was. Maybe it was 58, give or take. But Camille Davidson, the new dean of the law school. Okay. And and <clears throat> she had talked about you know a, a commitment to service in the region and what that looks yeah. like through the school of law. And yeah. you know I think if you've got just a handful more of folks, uh, you know that that have the same mindset like herself in the right places throughout the university. Yeah. Uh, that transformation just very well may be, you know, not only plausible, but underway as we speak. Yeah. Well, their law clinic over there has done that well, getting students involved and trying to help people with their, particularly the elderly, help mm-hmm. them with their legal affairs. Uh, that is really important. And they've been doing that pretty well for a long time. Yeah. And I'm sure she's committed to that. Yeah. I think that's, healthy healthy stuff where am i okay cool double double checking my time i still uh, sometimes i worry when i get into these conversations and sometimes the time flies by <laughs> sometimes the time paces out just right and i was worried i was like man we've had such a good conversation so far am i going to be lost here for time but we still got all the time in the world <laughs> so you were talking about you know what part of part of our conversation came of uh the idea to have uh, you know, folks from the from the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute on the podcast and just do a little bit of a series here. Good. Um, you know, that's kind of how I've, I've hoped to transform this piece of media that I'm creating. But also, I think that provides greater lift to, uh, you know, an organization as a whole. If I have a multitude of guests on sequentially or 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 near one another um, that can provide insight into an organization from their own particular standpoint, yours is unique in the fact that you've kind of got that day one <laughs> mm-hmm. view of the the institution. Um, just, I mean, is there, can you kind of walk me through the story as a whole? Of the Paul Simon <laughs> yeah. Institute? Yeah, well, uh, Paul, of course, served two terms in the Senate, five terms in the House. He represented this district uh, in the House first. Uh, and then in 1984, he beat Chuck Percy and got to be senator and, Thus, the whole state was his uh, his responsibility. But he always had a special feel for this area and had built a home in Makanda by that time. It really had become home. Uh, so all the time he was in Senate, he and Jane would come back here uh, when the session was out and when they needed a base, of course. Uh, I think they sometimes had an apartment in Chicago, but most of the time was here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when he decided to retire, I had hoped and uh, others had hoped that he might come back here and he evidenced some interest in that, but he also had lots of other off- offers, mm-hmm. many of them in Champaign, Chicago, and Washington. Really? Okay. Uh, so there was another dean named Joe Foote who was uh, dean of communications at mm-hmm. the time. Joe and I got the idea that we should put together a proposal, and uh, we both had been friends with Paul. In fact, I'd done some of his surveys and knew him way back when he first moved to the to town and ran, and that would have been 73 for the 74 election. Mm-hmm. So I'd been close with him. So Joe and I put together this proposal, and we started courting Paul and Gene. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Jean was certainly very much a part of the package. Yeah, uh, She was chair of the National Library Board at that time for the federal government, so she had a big responsibility mm-hmm. in Washington. 
they had one child in Washington and one here, Sheila at the time. Sheila and Perry uh, were here, of course, uh, then. And um, we had some advantages, but Washington, Chicago, Champaign had some advantages. So mm-hmm. uh, the board got behind this. Uh, uh, the president of the university at that time thought it was a great idea and was very supportive, a guy named Ted Sanders. Uh, so we worked it through the internal machinations first, faculty senate, graduate council, all the other constituency groups had to get on board. And <laughs> Anyway, we finally made Paul and Jean an offer. Uh, they accepted it, and mm-hmm. uh, we started the wheels turning. He came here on about January the 15th of, uh, he, he left the Senate uh, really in 96, but he served about 20 days of 97 and immediately came to SIU and mm-hmm. set up shop. Uh, we chose that site over there in the forestry building and we've been there ever since. <laughs> and I've now gone through five or six directors with uh, the Institute. But, of course, Paul was here seven years, which yeah. was a major advantage. I had a friend who was a political scientist that was head of the Robert Dole Institute out at the University of Kansas. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him about what we were doing. He said, man, you got a huge advantage. He says, I see Robert Dole about once or twice a year because he lives in Washington. Yeah, yeah. You got Paul Simon right there. Uh-huh. So that's the way it was and it's worked out beautifully. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's that the that the namesake of the institute being a tangible figure and in place teaching is... classes and all of that good stuff. <laughs> well, who did who did I see? Oh, I think Will Stevens did an interview with somebody at some point in the last couple of weeks and and there was oh well no no he did he did the yeah, the mayor right. series yeah, exactly. hello come on Nathan um and and got to talk about yeah, having he did. Paul as yeah a, and what an impact it had that he <laughs> yeah I thought he did well on that discussion of his and Paul's relationship well I I, I bet <laughs> there are lots and lots of people who have Paul Simon stories let me tell you well and they, and that's just that that speaks to that's what you're supposed to have if yeah. if you're in politics like that, and it doesn't matter if you're the elected official, if you're the chief of staff, if you're just somebody working the phones at the front desk yeah. in an office, or you're just somebody on it, you're you're supposed to have stories, yeah. right? Because that's those stories underpin that policy. Yeah, and Paul's were often great stories. He he was a character with lots of sort of special <laughs> quirks. <laughs> he loved Pepsi Cola, which Harry. Uh, Crisp over at Murph, or Marion loved the fact that he loved Pepsi-Cola, <laughs> but he was really a big fan of Pepsi-Cola. And one night I was driving him from White County, Carmi, where we'd been up there to a meeting until about 10 o'clock. And we were coming down to a little crossroads where there was a filling station and a couple of other buildings behind it. And he uh-huh. said, pull over into that filling. I said, Paul, it's closed. And he said, I don't care. Pull over in there. <laughs> so... He said, pull around here to the side. I pulled around, and there was a Pepsi machine. Uh-huh. <laughs> he got out and fed quarters into the Pepsi machine. <laughs> 10 o'clock at night, and he knew in the dark at a crossroads where the Pepsi machine was. <laughs> so that was Paul Simon with one of his weaknesses. <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's good. Was that was that Harry L. Chris number yeah. one or Harry L. Chris the second? Uh, well, <laughs> the, 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 actually, Harry... 
Chris II was the guy then. Uh-huh. His son was Lee, which is yeah. kind of the third. Yep. But Harry L. II was the guy that I was talking about, and he used to love. He and Paul were great friends, and he'd love Paul giving Pepsi. That's <laughs> awfully funny for for a guy of Harry L.'s persuasion. Yes, it is because <laughs> they were not always on the same political. <laughs> well, it, it, it cracks me. I've got I've got just a little bit of personal reference on on this one too, John. I I got. Pepsi fired me because they. I, I would say that they didn't like my politics, oh, whatever shit. else. That's that's fine. Neither here nor there. Um, but in in the time that I got to spend at at Pepsi, four months, I was I was a marketing person there. Oh. And I set up in the John Brown vending building in the back corner of this office next to what was this wide open glass w- walled office that was an executive yeah. space for yeah. for sweet. A, yeah, sweet. Exactly. Right. So. When Harry L. came back from Florida in, this would have been off, I, I, maybe July, August-ish of, of 2020, maybe a little bit before then. But he, um, he came back and he, he plopped himself right down in that office yeah. for a handful of months on a regular basis. Yeah. I got to see yeah. everybody go in and have yeah. an interaction yeah. right. with Ariel. And it's just, it's funny to be, to have just gotten just enough nearness of some of this activity to have a little bit of context to know exactly what a conversation between Harry L. Crisp and Paul Simon just might've looked like. <laughs> well, I actually got to go to a couple of dinner parties out at Paul's house in Macanda with Harry L. and uh-huh. Rosemary and, I saw that up close and personal, but they were great friends and mutual admirers, even though they had some serious political differences. That's, I would say that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a level of civility that, uh, yeah, they had that level of, they really did. Yeah. Well, that's what, you know, it's what we're missing. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's well, that's, that's what they say has gone wrong with the Senate and the house, especially because those people used to fight like crazy on the floor, and then they would go out to dinner at yeah. night, and they had friendships. They don't have much of that anymore. Yeah. It's become blood sport. And it is a shame because the the friendship component of politics Took, yeah. tied into a disagreement about policy is where effective government exists. Yeah, and it <laughs> it took some of the roughest and most brutal edges out of it and allowed them often to find a workable solution and public policy that could pass. The news tonight looks like there's going to be an infrastructure bill. Mm-hmm. That was normal legislating yeah. up until about 1994 when Newt Gingrich took over as the speaker. Do you I, really do you I mean do you see Newt Gingrich as like the kind of that that was one of the major breaking points Mm -hmm. right there it really started with reagan but it got much much more vicious with newt genrich and the 94 takeover of the house and the reward for that brand of politics which Mm -hmm. has continued and multiplied today do you have any particular advice that you think is an antidote to the, those set of politics that were fired up in that era? Um, 
Yeah, that's that's a tough question. And if we, not, it's okay. Don't don't feel like because there are some things we just don't have answers for. Well, if that's one of them. That's one. My of them. my answer is kind of something I talked about earlier. That is, we've got to do a better job with civic education and yeah. the need for these kinds of public dialogues and the idea that you stay within some boundaries and that there are norms and that there are guardrails and that they all exist in a democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise you get chaos and we've been teetering on chaos the january the 6th example of that chaos Mm -hmm. is what you get and there's got to be enough people step back in some horror of that and if you listen to those capital police who testified that shows you what you can get inside the capital that's not happened since 1812 Mm -hmm. and Reasonable people have to draw back in some horror from that level of vituperation and embracing of violence and embracing of reducing other people to the other to Mm -hmm. be hated and feared. And we don't have enough conversation about that. And the failure of civic education that I talked about earlier is a part of that. And we in public education haven't done a good enough job. The media haven't done enough to be able to get that message across. Well, in the just the difference in the way that media is presented as a whole. I mean, the 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 way that something like January sixth would have been covered in 1976 versus the way that it's seen yeah. now. Yeah. The 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 visuals of a few black and white photos. And some text and a little bit of, you know, glancing media on the television that you can only see in the moment that it's there on screen but nowhere else versus the mass of media that surrounds an event like this now that is almost difficult to digest for some people. Yeah, exactly. And we've got a ways to go on that. Uh, I think we're making progress and some days I'm more encouraged than others i'm (laughs) cautiously optimistic that we're going to come through this transition and lower the temperature just a bit which is what we need to do no i think i think it's but you know and i put in a plug for facts rather than ignorance and Mm -hmm. conspiracy theories and nonsense that passes for stuff that people believe Uh, (laughs) <laughs> we got way too much of that going on. Do you do you see that evident in the student body that you engage oh, with yeah. now? Yeah, you get all kinds. We're a big slice of what's coming out of Illinois high school, so mm-hmm. yeah, we get all kinds. Is it pretty significantly different than what it was many years ago? Um, that's that's a good question i think the major difference to me is a lack of interest in international foreign policy defense policy Mm -hmm. because my students Hmm. in 69 70 71 72 the males Mm -hmm. particularly were under the gun of the draft and they knew about the the vietnam war and Mm -hmm. what it meant to them very personally we don't have that today with the all-volunteer army. So I think that's the major change. I think, too, people are more vocationally oriented now than they were then. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids then weren't worried about a union card or what they were going to do, uh, probably sometimes very naively. But nevertheless, 
I think this is a much more practical when can I get a job and what does this mean for that paycheck? Yeah. And there are goods and bads to that. Well, and I, and I can, I can see the, the other side. I mean, I, I lucked out simply growing up in Carbondale college to me was just kind of that, that thing that you did. Cause it yeah. was there. Yeah. So I got to use it to, to enjoy myself and enrich myself a little bit and not have to focus on what a lot of folks have to go to school for, which is, how do I go to school, get this degree, go get a job on the other side? Yeah. So I can see where that transition would would occur from one one set of interests well, to the other. Well, what I used to tell students, and again, dean of liberal arts for 12 years, you yeah. can imagine I would do this, but I tell them it's not an either-or proposition. You can learn something that's going to be useful to you, get you that first job, get you to graduate school, professional school, law school, whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you need to learn what it means to be a a good citizen, a good person, a contributing member of society, and what those values are that make us uh, more human. Uh, we've always had a strong theater program, a strong music program, mm-hmm. all kinds of humanities, art program, for example. Those are the enrichment things that you're supposed to get from a university education. Mm-hmm. And so they can easily go hand to hand, but you have to work at it. John, I always look for just kind of this little, really nice kind of end point from folks. Sometimes it, it's perfect. Sometimes I work for it a little bit, and that was that was it. That was oh, the perfect okay. like. That's it. In, okay. in, in well, point. yeah, that is kind of a, <laughs> that is kind of a valedictorian speech. <laughs> and and I do hope that you've been able to learn just a little bit more from this conversation Absolutely. episode. Well, you're plugged in and I'm not. So I do, certainly, I know you're the sort of nerve center of a big part of the culture of certainly central Carbondale and, and all this region. So I appreciate that I don't have your access and I'm not out there circulating the way you are. Well, you, you definitely still have a particular style of access and your, sorry, I'm, I'm over my other switch here. The, the, Your influence, not just standalone, but again, as as part of this system yeah. of folks, right? Your ability to to rub off on people. I, I told this to somebody that I that I was discussing, um, you know, my platforms with a couple of weeks back that that had some grievances to to air with me. I was like, listen, I can't I can't have influence over things if I'm not close to them, yeah, for good or for bad, right? And I simply leverage a, a digital space to do that i happen to also exist very prevalently in a in a physical space but the map for something like that uh has been laid out by folks like yourself well thank you um and i appreciate that well i appreciate being uh, asked to come down i used to come <laughs> in here and watch movies and have, can't tell you how many times i brought my kids here i saw star wars here so. <laughs> well, th- and that's another really cool part just about this this function overall and why why producing this particular media in this particular space is important because this building is where memories exist. Oh yeah, absolutely. For <laughs> families like mine, we grew our kids grew up here, so we lived over on Swartz, right next to Winkler School. Did you guys the, used to walk down here? Oh yeah, we walked down. It <laughs> walked down here for Halloween when Halloween was a thing for families. Yeah. You know, we walked down here for all kinds of things. My kids walked all the way over to Lincoln. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is now the police station because we live close enough on Swartz. How old? How old are your kids now? Uh, my kids are uh, 
Uh, <laughs> ballpark. Give me ballpark. Uh, I mean, give me, I, I'm just trying to see where they line up with, uh, with if you if you happen to be around the same, uh, if they would have been around my parents' age, if you're around my, my grandfather's age, yeah, if there's any yeah. connection on the back end there. Yeah, my my <laughs> kids are now 50 and 52. Okay, all right. So they're, they went, they're, a little, they're a little bit younger. Yeah, little they little younger. went to Winkler School and Lewis School, and uh, then they went over – uh, to Thomas School. Uh, my wife taught in the Carbondale Public School System for a long time, so That's she great. knew all kinds of kids. Uh, and then they went off to, both of them went to the U of I to get away from me, basically. <laughs> I said, you, you could actually go this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows you. We're trying to get out of here. <laughs> uh, it's it's like having your dad be principal of the school in a very yeah, adult exactly. way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they thought I was too much to be around. They just wanted to go somewhere else because of that. But they had a great education and great upbringing in Carbondale. Oh, and that is part of it. And I don't think we've had too much of, of, of this man here by, by any stretch of the imagination. Episode 78 of the WTF Carbondale podcast, John Jackson. And as I always say, folks, have a good one, whatever that one yeah. may be. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> of course.